Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. Today, Nate kicks off our 13th season by welcoming back Ned Sublet to discuss his book, The World That Made New Orleans, From Spanish Silver to Congo Square. It's a deep dive into the historical factors that made America's most unique musical city so special. Email us at letitrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and Ned Sublet is returning today to talk about his book, The World That Made New Orleans, From Spanish Silver to Congo Square. Ned, welcome back. Hi. Thanks for, uh, thanks for remembering my book. It came out in 2008, and I'm delighted people are still reading it. Yeah, we're lost in time over here at the Let It Roll podcast, and this stuff's important. And if authors are willing to indulge me and talk about a book that they wrote a while back, I'm more than happy to go and talk about important stuff. This is not a press release, publisher schedule driven show, driven by the pursuit. That's how I, that's how I feel. Excellent, excellent. Still, I, I still love the book, so I'm I'm delighted that people are still reading it. Well, I think it's a very important book, and it answered a lot of questions and sent me down with a lot more questions, um, you know, because it's obvious New Orleans is a unique and incredibly musically significant city in the United States. It's not only the birthplace of jazz, but it's, uh, as you point out, possibly the birthplace of rock and roll. It's uh, got an enormous a thriving hip hop scene to this day. So it's um, and funk, one of the capitals of funk. So Basically, every musical trend of the 20th century, it was either at the forefront of or in second place. And for a city of its size, it's just incredible, you know, how much above its weight it punches. And so much of its music is distinctive and unique. And there's also little ticks and traits that go from all New Orleans music, from Jolly Roll Morton all the way through Dave Bartholomew and Fats Domino through Lil Wayne. And so, uh, you know, your book was really valuable to explain a lot of that to me. And one of the things that you make this connection on the first page of the book, you talk about Congo Square and you 
point out that Roy Brown's Good Rockin' Tonight, which you say, if you were asked to name the first rock and roll song, you'd say there wasn't any such thing. And then I'd say it was Good Rockin' Tonight by Roy Brown. But why did you start those two specific things to start the book? Because of the spatial confluence. The but first I want to before I even directly answer your question, I'm just going to like hyperlink wildly here and say that based uh, responding to what you just said, New Orleans is a world historical city in terms of music. It is a city of global significance. Jazz which jumped out of New Orleans transformed the way the entire world thought about music. The problem is that for many writers, New Orleans only begins with jazz. And there was a whole New Orleans before jazz, which is what the world that made New Orleans is about, is about what, uh, because the the world that made New Orleans ends in 1819. (laughs) Um, Just as we were getting started with a whole other billionaire in New Orleans music, that if you want to talk about a phrase from Jelly Roll Morton, to into the presence, we can extend that back farther. If you play Louis Moro Gottschalk, the great composer, um, the great United States composer of the 19th century, the first great American piano virtuoso, the first great American concert attraction, you can play Gottschalk back to back with Jelly Roll's Mama Nita and hear a connection that is so strong. Uh, so I just want to say that this, this, the importance and uniqueness of New Orleans is so grand. Now, when we get to Good Rockin' Tonight, which I think is a very, very important record in music history, and also for, for multiple reasons, not just because of the use of the word rock, which was already going on in, in uh, gospel music and in, uh, in religious vernacular, black religious music, going back as far as we can track it. Um, but also because it was the beginning of the Dave Bartholomew studio band. So it was very, very, and it was also a record that became a literally a street hit in New Orleans on the basis of the innovation of black radio. And even though black people weren't yet allowed to be on the radio by this point, white people were playing music for black audiences. And even New Orleans in particular had a, a DJ named Papa Stapa, who was white but had a black uh, man write his uh, jive talk for him. So it was they were really marketing this music to black people on radio for black people, which really flipped the script. It was such an important record. And the the when I say the spatial confluence, New Orleans isn't very big, and to think that. Good Rockin' Tonight was recorded catty corner from Congo Square, right? The great sacred site of New Orleans music, the place where the enslaved and free people of color gathered every Sunday 
to play ancestral music, dance ancestral dances, uh, play ancestral instruments, but also a laboratory where a new African-American music was being formed every Sunday. If we went back to Congo Square, if I could be transported in a time machine, I might hear something I'd recognize because I might hear something that sounded like, well, I think in particular like the Bomba of Western Puerto Rico. Uh, and I have reasons for thinking that, but I think that knowing the African descended music of the Antilles, as I do, I would think I would hear some quite a few things I would recognize at Congo Square, but I would also hear things I can't imagine that would blow my mind. Things that, appeared and perhaps disappeared or resubmerged and emerged in other ways. Uh, when they have uh, something about Congo Square in the media, of course, they always have to uh, try to simulate it somehow, which is kind of destined to fail because we just plain don't know what it sounded like. If you look at Ken Burns's jazz, you know, the New Orleans episode, when they get to Congo Square, they have this sort of vaguely, you know, this this music in the background, but of course, we just don't know. But what we do know that is recorded is that Good Rock and Tonight sprang up right across the street and a block down from Congo Square, a place, by the way, which is now imperiled Congo Square. Uh, there's a big, big community uh issue in New Orleans right now because Latoya Cantrell, the African-American mayor elected with heavy support from the traditional African-American community, which feels uh, some of whose uh, members feel quite betrayed at the moment, is attempting to put the new city hall um, right where the, uh, I believe where the Morris uh, Jeff Auditorium is now right adjacent to it and build a 12-story parking garage. Uh, so, you know, Congo Square uh, in particular is, uh, as I say, it's a sacred site. And it's never been, the, the commons of Congo Square has never been built over in all these years. It was originally a marketplace. Well, originally, there is no originally. But when the Europeans arrived, um, there was a, uh, it was, of course, native ground, native territory, and very quickly it became a marketplace where the natives would, Native Americans would sell uh, products to the, uh, to the Europeans uh, on Sundays, but it wasn't even the Europeans that they sold to. It was mostly African-American women or African women who were sent by uh, sent out to do the marketing. And over time, it became a place for a black marketplace. And uh, that that over the course of a Sunday market day became also a site of music and dancing. This and let me jump in, and it's, I want to. Yeah, I'm, I am tripping out on this because it's the first thing you got to understand about New Orleans is Congo Square, and the fact that this proto rock and roll record jumped off right out of Congo Square. I had to start the book with that, and that, and I think that answers your question. It does, and let's hear a little snippet of Roy Brown's "Good Rockin' Tonight." And when we come back, I want to ask Do you. It. 
what was so unique about Congo Square in terms of instruments that were allowed to be played there. But this is Roy Brown, Good Rockin' Tonight. Okay. Roy Brown's Good Rockin' Tonight with Dave Bartholomew and so many other New Orleans pivotal musical figures from the R&B and rock and roll era playing, backing him up. And in Congo Square, African-Americans were allowed to play drums. And this was virtually unique in the North American continent. Why was it that they were allowed to play drums and say African-Americans in South Carolina were not? Because New Orleans was Catholic. Very simply, because, you know, sometimes you hear people say New Orleans is the northernmost town of the Caribbean, which sounds good. And there was a time when I would even repeat that canard. But the problem is it's not true because New Orleans isn't on the Caribbean. Uh, there are people who argued that the Caribbean somehow includes the Gulf of Mexico or you know, some people who say that the Caribbean is the island chain. I don't buy that. I say the Gulf the New Orleans is on the Gulf of Mexico, which connects to the Caribbean most certainly. But uh, New Orleans is what New Orleans is unquestionably is the northernmost point in the hemisphere that stops cold for carnival for pre-Linton Carnival, what they call in New Orleans Mardi Gras. And that carnival, uh, you know, they don't have that in South Carolina. They don't have it because, of course, it's a Catholic thing. I think it's really significant that uh, Congo Square was opposite what became called the French Quarter because people spoke French there, as opposed to the Anglo-American sector uptown from Canal Street. New Orleans really divided into uptown and downtown. And the Anglo-American part grew up uptown, and downtown below Canal Street was French and, to a lesser degree, Spanish-speaking people. Now, both the French and the Spanish-speaking uh, communities came from place, places that had their own history of how to uh, how to deal with uh, African beliefs and African sociability. The, of course, the Catholic Church itself grew out of the rituals of the Catholic Church. In many ways, grew out of what is badly called pagan ritual that existed before uh, before Rome was Catholicized. But the, the Protestants didn't do any of that stuff. In Saint-Domingue, the future Haiti, or in uh, Cuba, the things that went on at Congo Square would not have been so surprising, except that uh, they would have been happening all over the place and not just in this one space on 
the one and only day a week. But Sunday was Black Music Day throughout the hemisphere for sure, and Sunday is still Black Music Day in New Orleans uh, to this day. The uh, at the, the accounts of Congo Square mention that at a certain hour, the constables came in with their cutlasses and stopped the proceedings cold. And I saw police do that to second lines in New Orleans. At the stroke of five, if the, uh, if the second line hasn't stopped, the second liners are reclassified as terrorists and they practically have a SWAT team descend on them. So there's a real continuity of all sorts that goes on between the music of that even though we don't know what the music in Congo Square was, we know that this was a space for black affirmation, and it's still a space for black affirmation. Now, in terms of the uh, the drums, of course, drums were were heavily prohibited in the Anglo-American domains, and again. This is also a Protestant Catholic thing. Remember that when New Orleans, when Louisiana was annexed by the United States, there was not a Protestant church in New Orleans on December 20th, 1803, and there was not a Catholic church in Boston. It's hard for us now in the present day to realize how anti-Catholic the Anglo-American colonies that uh, declared themselves the United States were. Uh, in Virginia in particular, it was very intolerant in the 17th century. Uh, so when uh, when I say that New Orleans was Catholic, I mean this was, this was a major, major difference in all sorts of respects. So uh, in the drums, which were prohibited in the Anglo-American territories, though they did turn up, uh, and we have some archaeological evidence of this on plantations at various times, but they were much, much more visible. And in Cuba, where there's a system of what are called cabildos de nación, they were allowed to be played, and religious ceremonies were allowed to be conducted behind the closed doors of the cabildo. Uh, in Saint-Domingue, of course, where the population was so overwhelmingly black, there was no stopping it, and there were drums all over the place. Uh, and this, uh, this in New Orleans became restricted so it could be monitored to Sunday afternoon at Congo Square. Bruce Rayburn calls Congo Square a regulatory period, which I think is great because it only existed as such for a few decades, in, in, in particular in the 19th century after the Anglo-American takeover, though the space was a commons used for marketing and drumming and dancing before. Uh, and by the 1830s, it was pretty much over certainly by the 1850s. And let's hear another song snippet. And this is from Louis Moreau Gottschalk, the composer and piano virtuoso who came out of the New Orleans in the mid-19th century. And this is Bambula, and this is played by Alan Feinberg on piano. was Louis Moreau Gottschalk's Bambula um, by Albert Allen Feinberg on piano. And this 
is a, something they pointed to pointed me to, out to in the book. And you're saying he's got a figure in there that's very familiar, a rhythm that's sometimes called the ta tango rhythm, sometimes called the habanero rhythm. Where did that rhythm come from, as best you know? Oh, I got to say, Nathan, first of all, it's just so thrilling for me to hear my book illustrated with these key pieces of music whose importance I've been insisting on all these years. Uh, bambula, bambula, which um, in Puerto Rico, bambula was the name of the earliest known forms of bomba. In, um, in It is played in one part of the Dominican Republic uh, that was founded by New Orleans refugees. Uh, it was called bambula, but it's the, the, the name is Kikongo. And uh, Robert Ferris Thompson says that it means to remember a place to, that they were that is remembering your place or your village. Uh, in in New Orleans, the rhythm became that was that they call bambula is the re, bambula they call it in New Orleans accent on the second syllable was the rhythm that uh, is it was the it was the Antillean beat. Boom, 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 boom. And you can hear this in Gottschalk. You can hear it in reggaeton. It's also known as the tango, and it's the basic cell of uh, the tangos of the of, of Argentina. It's uh, also, you know, the habanera, branded as Havana because the rhythm was so popular in Havana, and Havana was, a, was the great radiator of music in the hemisphere. New Orleans was a satellite by comparison. But, uh, you know, Carmen, Abanera in the opera Carmen. You could make a mashup of Louis Moreau Gottschalk and Carmen and Daddy Yankee, and you would find that all of the rhythms line up. Boom. Boom. Now, Gottschalk in Bambula, written when he was 18, uses that rhythm in the right hand. After he went and spent quality time in Cuba, he followed the Cuban practice and moved that rhythm over into the bass. So that in his Ojos Criollos, Danse Cubain, Cuban Dance, published in New Orleans after Gottschalk had left the city, but uh, still published there in 1860, that rhythm is boom, 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 boom. And if you listen to Jos Criollos, damned if it doesn't sound like ragtime, some kind of proto version of ragtime. But the ragtime boom didn't happen for 35 years after Jos Criollos was published. The the so-called Civil War intervened. That'll do it. That'll do it. And and you know also ragtime is generally credited <laughs> with coming out of the Missouri era area rather than New Orleans. So it's inter and you know they were connected by that big big river. And well, there was ragtime. Ragtime was unquestionably important. In you know, it didn't didn't all come out of New Orleans. I mean, the big it, there was uh, Scott Joplin, of course, in St. Louis, and there were people playing ragtime in New York pretty quickly. But that rhythm was already going in New Orleans and entered the mainstream of the United States through the port of New Orleans.
And there's a distinction that you draw, drew my attention to that I really had been ignorant of before reading your book on Cuba. And that's this distinction between the music and cultural backgrounds. You know, you can essentially divide the Africans who were enslaved and, and brought to America into two big categories, one from the North and one from Southern Africa. What are the big differences in their musical cultures that we can still hear today? That's a major, major distinction. And it's, I haven't really heard anyone else uh, expound on it in this way, except, um, well, there is uh, one important scholar who uh, I have to take my hat off to, Gerhard Kubik, uh, whose book Africa in the Blues lays out some of this theoretical territory. And I also want to say that I was heavily influenced by my contact with the late Robert Palmer, the writer who lived in Treme in his late days. But when I talk about Catholic versus Protestant, the two great cultural halves of the hemisphere, in Africa, the two great cultural hemispheres were Islamized in the north and non-Islamized. And when I say Islamized, this refers to not only the Maghreb in North Africa, but the region, the, the Sahelian region below the Sahara, which includes present-day Senegal. Well, all the all the territories that are Muslim today. Uh, the Kingdom of Takrur had Islamic law already in the 11th century, and all of this, while African, was heavily influenced by Arabic music and by the music of Islam, which was not merely Arabic, but also Persian in influence. And we don't know as much about that as we'd like. But some of the musical differences, uh, the music of Senegal versus, say, the music of Congo, which was not an Islamized territory. Music of Senegal is heavily melismatic, as as is American blues. So by melisma, I mean multiple notes on a single vowel. Ah, this uh, you the the system of ornamentation. You can hear this in the mu in music in Pakistan and in India, you uh, heavily, but you can certainly hear it in the in Arabic music. So. Uh, melismatic music. Uh, you can hear um, bent tones um, much more, uh, the, the so-called blue notes. Uh, whereas uh, in in uh, Congo, you have much more of a sense of repeating harmonic loops, the kind of thing you might play on an mbira, uh, just with fixed pitches that keep playing in a loop. You have um, different kinds of textures. Um, the texture of the music of forest Africa has is more polyrhythmic, more um, more percussive than the music of the Senegalese region. And there is one other very, very important distinction. Well, there are a number of others, but uh, swing, what we call in the U.S. swing. Uh, I use the word in this case to refer to uneven eighth notes. Well, if you're, uh, you know, if you're in junior high school 
stage band and they give you a jazz chart to play you already know that if it says doba 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 you don't play doba 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 you play doba 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 because that's swinging well that's what the music of Senegal does. If you listen to a chora player, uh, you will hear this very often, this kind of rocking feel, something like what we call 6-8, but I argue that swing isn't subdivision into triplet. Swing is swing. Um, Wynton Marsalis might disagree with me about that, and who am I to argue? But <laughs> Uh, I mean, the three over two feel is unquestionably a part of swing, but I also feel like there's something else going on there that isn't quite just subdivision. Uh, but the music of Cuba is straight eights all the way, and it is how the and it's polyrhythmic, linked together by a rhythmic key called clave. So that uh, different instruments can layer a polyrhythm by uh, all adhering to the rhythmic key known as clave. This is very strongly felt in Yoruba music in Africa. It is not really so strongly felt in the music of Senegal, which it tends to, you know, tends to be much more of a swinging kind of music. And if you look at the the demographics of the slave trade, and before you get into this, I want to take a sponsor break. And then when we come back, I want I want you to tell us, you know, where those two different groups ended up in the Americas and why those musical traits are associated with specific regions in North America and the Caribbean. So quick break from our sponsor. We'll be right back. Pay those bills, baby. Pay those bills. (laughs) And so you've been telling us about the musical differences between the two key regions of Africa, the two macro regions, cultural regions of Africa, the Islamicized North or Senegal and, and the uh, Sub-Saharan Africa centered on the Congo, which is more polyrhythmic. How did those people get distributed? And what an ugly word, but what an ugly thing it was. How were they distributed in the Americas? And and why are certain musical traits more associated with North American, African-American music versus, say, Afro-Cuban music? Sure. Well, this is pretty mind-blowing. You know, I talked a minute ago about how you have in the in the in our hemisphere, you have Protestantism in the north and Catholicism in the south, right? And uh, that was for the that that was for the European side of it. But in the African distribution, you also had Islamized Africa in the north and Catholic Africa in the south. Um, that's that's quite something, because the Senegambians were not the largest uh, traded population, and they were not traded over the entire history of the slave trade uh, in the way that the Congo were. Uh, Congo were slaved for for centuries. They were the first to be slaved. They were the last to be slaved. But uh, Senegambian, the peaks of Senegambian slaving corresponded with the bulking up of the enslaved population in the soon-to-be United States, which mostly took place in the 18th century. 
And Senegambia, if you look at the map, uh, of course, Senegambia, the farthest north of the slaving territory, was uh, much more likely to go to North America. The transport times were shorter and the people were more likely to arrive alive. The transport times from Congo to uh to Virginia or to South Carolina were much longer, and uh, the the human cargo was uh, had a higher mortality rate. Also, the uh, Senegambians were skilled at cultivating the crops that they wanted, in specifically in Carolina, rice. Uh, so it's a fact that in the three major fountainheads of African-American culture, the Chesapeake, Charleston, and the Low Country, and to a demographically lesser but still culturally significant extent, the Gulf Coast, you have Senegambians as basic first populators. Uh, in the Catholic part of the hemisphere, this was not so much the case. And Congo in particular was Catholicized in 1491 when the first missionaries arrived, not at Swords Point, but voluntarily uh, by when the Mani Congo Nzingenku became Pejual Primero and ordered that his kingdom be converted to Catholicism. And although Congo continued with its traditional religion under these new symbols, the syncretization, the much-discussed syncretization, happened first in Africa, and Congo Catholicism was brought to everywhere Congos were brought to. In North America, they were viewed with great suspicion because they were Catholic, but in in uh, in Cuba, in the in the domains of the Spanish kings and the Portuguese kings, these Catholicized Africans were welcomed, were considered uh, were considered good to be brought because they were not Muslim. The uh, Iberian kings, of course, uh, had spent um, Iberia had spent Christian Iberia had spent eight centuries driving out the Muslims. So. Uh, Congo's Catholic, in many cases already Portuguese-speaking Congos, were brought to Cuba and to wherever uh, Africans were brought. And Angolans built Brazil, period. Perhaps as many as four million Angolans were transported right across. This is the closest point of the Middle Passage from uh, from Congo, Angola to uh, Brazil. So there is a distribution map of musical style in Africa, from north to south in Africa, characterized in part by Islamic or non-Islamic, though that is too simplified a model, and brought trans translated in some very rough sense to the musical map of the hemisphere. And New Orleans is not only populated by Africans, but it's also got European populations coming in. And the French obviously were the first to found New Orleans and settle it and it's sort of the Donald Trump thing. They weren't sending their best people. Tell us about that Parisian underclass of white people that were some of the earliest and also frequently involuntary settlers of New Orleans and how they blended into the mix. And I've just been dying to drop the gumbo metaphor in there, so forgive me. <laughs> oh, the dreaded gumbo metaphor. Um, the 
to go to Louisiana, uh, Louisiana was a terrible, terrible place. It was, uh, you would die if you went there quite possibly uh, of diseases or of starvation. Uh, it was a, it, it, to be sent to Louisiana in early 18th century France was like, you know, in the Soviet Union being sent to Siberia. There, you know, girls, there was one incident where girls in prison rioted uh, in order to keep from being sent to Louisiana. And uh, they had, as happened in some other places during the immigration, um, the French emptied their prisons and their juvenile homes and sent. Uh, sent, uh, you know, petty crooks and, uh, quote, debauched, uh, close quote, girls uh, to Louisiana to populate it. So the a number of the first uh, European populators of New Orleans were uh, people of the lowest social class. And they weren't exactly diving in and starting up family farms and and healthy little businesses. No, they they weren't they weren't exactly the the uh, the, the the straight up farmer type. They were uh, they, they tended to uh, you know the, the New Orleans has always been the Wild West. Let's put it that was still the Wild West, but New Orleans was really I mean Havana was the Wild West uh, in its early years. It was the farthest western, you know, sort of like the tr Havana was the truck stop at the end of the world for Spain. And New Orleans uh, was even, you know, more isolated than Havana. You have to understand how, I mean, Havana became a hub of communication uh, located as it is uh, at, a at a favorable spot in the Gulf Stream, right, where the uh, loop current becomes the Gulf Stream that is an express lane in the sea that goes back to Europe. But Duos was really hard to get to, in part because of the same loop current. It wa uh, wasn't easy to get there. And it was quite isolated in the early days as some, the character of the city, the first character of the city was being established. It, uh, there weren't that many slave ships that came. There weren't that many French colonists that came. So the population had to learn the survival secrets from the natives, both black and white. And over uh, time, it, they became their own thing. By the time the Spanish took it over, in the uh, 1760s and opened slave importation and started to bring in lots of Congos, uh, among others. Uh, we don't really have numbers, but uh, Gwendolyn Midlow Hall's Africans in Louisiana will tell you a lot about this. But as New Orleans started to fill up with uh, other with, with more Africans, we got distinct layers of Afro-Orleans being built. I sort of see it as overdubbing over a basic track. When, but when the Congos started to arrive in numbers, there were Congos in New Orleans from at least in small numbers from the earliest days. But when they started to arrive in large numbers during the Spanish period in the last third of the 18th century, by this point, there was already a kind of a basic track laid down uh, musically that I sort of think of it as, as overdubbing. Dubbing in a sense, they had to find a fusion between these very different African styles within the city. So it developed this richness. And I may be projecting out ahead of, of the narrative you're laying down here, but I have to say that the, of course, if we want to talk about 
two great populations, uh, two great black populations, we have to note the difference between the directly African-descended populations and the African-American enslaved people brought down over land from Virginia and by uh, sea from Virginia, South Carolina, the domestic slave trade, which dwarfed the African slave trade in terms of population during the uh, decades it was active. Uh, more people came to New Orleans from Virginia than, well, as I it put it in talking about my book, The American Slave Coast, more slave ships came to New Orleans from the East Coast of the United States than from Africa. And let's take a break and hear Jolly Roll Morton singing and talking about some of the uh, New Orleans Indian music and talking about that phenomenon uh, and whether or not it's related at all to the to the Choctaws and the other native groups or if it's a different creation of its own. Dude, you are playing my favorites today. You 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 made the playlist. I just copied it. That have a kind of a rhythm uh, with the with the heels like this. And that was the great Jolly Roll Morton, the self-proclaimed father of jazz, much disputed. He also claimed he was not African-American, but a Creole of white descent, purely white descent. But here he is talking about the sort of music that the New Orleans Indians, which are African-American groups who dress up in Native American regalia and perform and sing in the streets and parade in the streets. Is this like, is there a relationship between the music of the actual Native Americans and and what we hear on the streets of New Orleans up to this day? And how much blending was there? I mean, a lot of, of Native Americans passed as African-American in this period and vice versa. There was tremendous blending going on from the beginning. And I think one of the great facts that is underappreciated, and really I didn't uh, get into this in the world that made New Orleans, though it is in the American Slave Coast, is that by the time Iberville arrived to found the Louisiana colony, the region was already starting to be hollowed out of its native population by slave traders from South Carolina who established uh, trading posts over land and were arming uh, various uh, native groups against each other to capture each other and sell them as slaves. So who were then taken back to South Carolina. Slaves were uh, considered to be a great uh, merchandise in this sense because they could literally walk themselves to market instead of having to be lugged. Um, the, the in once in uh, South Carolina, and we're talking about the again the the. 17th century, uh, they were traded sometimes two to one for black people from the Antilles. 
firsthand, they were sold up and down. Uh, of course, there were, at, in the early days, uh, all of the colonies had slavery. So uh, natives from the what was then the far southwest were traded from Carolina all the way up to, you know, up to Boston and down to and down to the Antilles. Uh, so there is a shared history of slavery there, as well as a shared tradition of freedom. The enslaved, uh, of course, in every era, uh, escaped whenever they could and revolted whenever they could. In every place there was slavery, in every era. And this uh, in in Spanish, this is called cimarronaje, marinage in French. Uh, the 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 notion of taking one's own freedom, and the most common explanation given for the use of for the appropriation of Native American motifs by these groups of black men called Mardi Gras Indians, though increasingly the term black masking Indians is being used, um, they, is that they that it honors the uh, the Native Americans who helped the who helped uh, black people escape slavery. And indeed, the history is complex because, of course, uh, Indians owned black people as slaves at times. Um, Indians and black people intermarried and formed communities together. And indeed, there was the United States government fought a war prosecuted by Andrew Jackson, possibly the most disastrous American president until Trump, uh, that uh, fought a war against black and Indian people in Florida. Uh, literally a war against them when uh, that um, that ended up with uh, because at at one time Florida was a widely known center of maronage, a sort of a wild free state for uh, for black people that went back to the days of when Florida was the only Catholic place in the hemisphere. Um, Bear in mind that Virginia and subsequently South Carolina, Virginia was founded to be out of the reach of Florida, of the Catholics in Florida, of the Spanish in Florida. And then South Carolina was a buffer zone between Virginia and Florida. And then Georgia was a buffer zone between South Carolina and Florida. So Florida was until until the English took over Florida. And uh, subsequently, Andrew Jackson, it was a hotbed of trouble. So there's, there, I think there's a strong connection all throughout this region that turns up in one way or another in the lore of the Mardi Gras Indians. I guess that's the best way I can explain it. And I want to be careful of over-explaining and interpreting the Mardi Gras Indians because it's really for them to do. It's not for me to do. And they're still very much... Uh, refining their narrative and evolving their narrative to suit their own ends. In, uh, in terms of the music, um, I, the music of the Mardi Gras Indians is one of the great American treasures. It's It predates jazz, first of all. Let's be clear. Uh, the, it, and it predates it, the blues. The Mardi Gras Indians. All right. But it predates Doesn't, the blues. It, yeah. uh, it, it, the, the lore of Mardi it, it, at the very least, it predates the blues as a formalized entity. Um, 
the uh, the the plantations work songs the tonalities that the blues grew out of um, that's another story but the, the the Mardi Gras Indians were formalized in the late 1880s and as such with the formation of the Creole Wild West but but again the Indian lore stresses the connection to Congo Square going farther back than that and the the Mardi Gras Indian cultural um, Projection is very much about uh, black autonomy, black control of their of their own territory, black self-defense, black self-assertion, black family. And all of this is intimately connected with the complex relationship that African-Americans and Native Americans had is kind of the best way I can say it. The music uh, is it's not an enormous repertoire, but it's a very distinctive repertoire. And something you mentioned right up top about how all the different music genres came came to New Orleans, because New Orleans was such a great cultural capital for African-Americans, bear in mind that in the 1840 census, New Orleans was pretty much tied with Baltimore as the second largest uh, U.S. city. It was a huge huge black cultural capital and all the way through the 20th century if a genre did not completely originate in new orleans it passed through and spent quality time in new orleans in the process of defining itself and becoming known uh and and if you know it's it's not correct to say that rock and roll originated in New Orleans simply, or that rhythm and blues originated in New Orleans simply. But these strong early movements in that direction that came out of the city were uh, very much in an an open circuit with the rest of the African-American nation. And as this happened, for example, in in the days of in the heavy Jim Crow days, when the Dew Drop In was the great uh, music venue for black people in New Orleans, opposite the Magnolia Projects in the 40s, uh, you know, Ray Charles had a room at the Dew Drop where he would stay. He would be there for weeks. You know, uh, James Brown would be there for weeks. You know, they, and they would jam with uh, people from the from across the street in the projects. It was a tremendous free flow of musical communication. I think it's important to stress that even as we stress the differences between various sites, uh, just how how porous and how interconnected uh, all of this nation, all of this black American nation was musically. Um, That said, the Mardi Gras Indians uh, are one of the the stubbornest indications of something that is purely New Orleanian. And these songs, uh, some of them we all know, everybody knows Ico Ico by now. Uh, You can uh, adapt that to any kind of African-American musical form that came along after that. Including real building pop, which I'm going to do a show on the Dixie Cups next week, and they they did exactly that. And while I've got you paused, real building pop. Yeah, I want to play um, what my last song sample snippet, and this is one that really blew my mind when I discovered, and it's not my discovery, but when I realized belatedly that the first ever jazz record, or the consensus first ever jazz record, was recorded by a white band with the misnomer name yep. the Original Dixieland Jazz Band, and this is Livery Stable yes. Blues from 1917. Very important record. 
And that was the original Dixieland Jazz Band, or the ODJB, as their fans call them, doing Livery, Livery Stable Blues, the first jazz record by Common Consensus. And there's two big topics I want to get into, and I only have 10 minutes. So at the risk okay. of a musical non sequitur, I want to, before we talk about why was the first jazz record recorded by a white band, I want to talk a little bit. You've talked about Havana and its relationship to New Orleans, but there's another island that has a very special relationship with New Orleans, and it's what we now call Haiti, but was called back in the day Saint-Domingue, or how do you say it best? Saint-Domingue. Saint-Domingue. And how, why was that such a key ingredient in the dreaded New Orleans musical Ooh. gumbo? Well, that's we got a whole bunch of things going on here at once. Um, just to finish up, I want with with the with the Margaritas. I just want to say that you know, Ico Ico, the first recording of it that uh, became popular was by Sugarboy Crawford. It was under the name Giacomo, and that was very much a mambo, a Cuban flavored record. Cuban music was very very hot at the time. That was very much uh, a mambo flavored kind of record. Uh, Doctor John could give it the funk treatment, etc. You could put any kind of clothes on the Mardi Gras Indian songs, and they continue to work. Now. Um, in Cuba, there was always an open link between Havana and New Orleans. Havana was New Orleans' number one commercial partner from the days of the Spanish colonization going forward until the imposition of the embargo of Cuba by President Kennedy, which was also an embargo of New Orleans because it took away the city's greatest trade partner. And it's still an embargo of New Orleans to this day. And the embargo of Cuba should end. Now, talk about Agreed. the original yeah, Dixieland. Yeah. Uh, uh, talk about the original Dixieland jazz band. Um, Phil Schapp, who uh, just passed, uh, I've, I've heard him do hours-long shows about the minutiae of the original Dixieland jazz band. Uh, I mean, I, I think we first have to get out of the way the fact that, um, unfortunately, the Nick LaRocca of the original Dixieland jazz band was a racist and later in his life uh, said publicly that um, it wasn't black music, uh, that they were that they were playing um it um th that's unfortunate um and now why were they the first it should be noted i think that i mean well we all know about racism in the music industry and we all know about uh the separation of the of music for the black consumer the concept of race records which was music by black artists for black consumers hadn't really gotten off the ground in 1917 when the original dixieland jazz band recorded livery stable blues right before i should note this might seem significant to us now right before the onset of the great pandemic of 1918 that uh, transformed american society in so many ways but it should be noted that um, actually African-American trumpeter Freddie Capard had the opportunity to be the first jazz musician to be recorded, but turned it down um, because he uh, was afraid that if people could hear his licks, they would copy them. And that does happen. And he, he, he actually co does happen. Uh, of course, that would have redounded to his benefit. And ultimately, of course, he was recorded, and which is how we know his licks today. He actually was even known to play uh, with a uh, 
a cloth over his hand so that people couldn't see his valve movement. So uh, so concerned was he about protecting his 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 licks. Um, I, one thing I want to point out about livery stable blues that I've heard it many, many times, and actually they recorded it many times. 1917 was only the first recording they made of it, and uh, they 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 went through they, the band played for a long time and recorded a lot uh, with varying membership. But one of the key points, almost the thing I remember most about the Livery Stable Blues, is that horse whinny in the middle, right? That yeah. That on the trumpet, uh, it's absolutely central to any version of livery stable blues that at some point the trumpet imitates an animal cry. And that is so characteristic of African music. And that is so characteristic of the what seems to have been going on in black music in New Orleans, where new ways were found to speak on the instrument where the, I think it was New Orleans. There's a, there's polemic about, well, did jazz really begin in New Orleans or did they just take the credit? I think it's unquestionable that the transformative step into what we might call jazz, uh, though there was African music going on all over African American music going on all over the country, but that the, the transformative step was taken in New Orleans. And I think, one of the most important factors in that step was the transformation of the military trumpet, which had previously played, you know, before the invention of valves in the early 19th century, had previously, you know, played reveille and taps and could not play scales um, into a discursive instrument that could play, that could mimic speech, mimic animal cries, mimic that could play soliloquies. The, this was this was the Buddy Bolden step, and of course, Buddy Bolden was unrecorded, so we don't know what he sounded like. But we have uh, we have uh, testimony by people who heard him. And the book to read, if you want to know, one of my favorite books about music, uh, Thomas Brothers's Louis Armstrong's New Orleans, a wonderful account by a historian of what music was like in New Orleans before before it was documented on record. Uh, absolutely central book to understanding this, I believe. Uh, now, as to Saint-Domingue. Um, Saint-Domingue, of course, was a sister colony of French Louisiana. The French didn't, did not really have very strong control of New Orleans, even though they had a lot of French-speaking colonists who were very independent-minded. But uh, and it wasn't that easy to get from uh, Saint-Domingue to uh, Louisiana. The One of the first colonists who, well, I think the first colonist who really left us an account, a Dutchman named Lepage de Prats, uh, who came early in the day before there were any, before any slave ships had come, in fact, um, spent, writes how it took them two months to cross from France to uh, Cap Francais, now Cap Haitien, in northern Saint-Domingue. From there, it took them three months to get from Cap Francais to New Orleans, to Louisiana. Wow. They didn't go to New Orleans. Just a reminder of how uh, isolated it was because you were going against the loop current. It was a hard, hard sail. And 
once you got to Louisiana, by the way, once you if you were once New Orleans was established, the worst part of the trip was the last sixty miles because once you got down to the bird foot, which in those days was larger bef- below New Orleans, you had to crawl up the this uh, this delta and up the Mississippi River to get to New Orleans, uh, which could take weeks. Um, so uh, there was a there was a colonial connection, uh, however, and it was uh, it was ongoing from the earliest days. The of course the impact of the Haitian Revolution is one of the seismic events of hemispheric history. We feel it very strongly in Cuba, as uh, right next door to San Domingue becoming Haiti, and at the. Uh, in the late days of the complex series of events known as the Haitian Revolution, uh, when Napoleon sent the largest army that had crossed the Atlantic yet to try to subdue the uh, liberated black people of Saint-Domingue, he, uh, you know, his their their mission was to their assignment was to subdue. Uh, Saint-Domingue and reinstate slavery, which he thought would could be done quickly because there was no way that these primitive, he thought, people could withstand the power of the mighty French army, right? Uh, wrong. Had, had he been had they had um, General Leclerc been successful, his brief was to continue on to New Orleans and take control of it, which they might well have been able to do at least for a while. And uh, had that happened, American history would be different in unimaginable ways. Um, had had Napoleon actually managed to establish a, a colony in Louisiana that would su- serve as a supply system for his uh, lucrative sugar column in Saint-Domingue. You have to understand that uh, Saint-Domingue at its peak in the 18th century was the most the richest piece of ground on earth and had the densest concentration of Africans ever assembled. No piece of ground in Africa could support the concentration of population that was jammed together in the labor camps of Saint-Domingue. Saint-Domingue was a formative place for the hemisphere. In Saint-Domingue, large numbers of black people from all over the slaving territories of Africa, from Senegal down to Congo, were jammed together in a single place, uh, having to learn to work together under military discipline. Uh, so it was is a very very powerful place in terms not only of military power, uh, because they brought with them uh, many of the people brought to Saint-Domingue had been, were soldiers captured in slave raiding wars in Africa. Uh, and it was not only powerful militarily, but spiritually, because it was a place where the various uh, spiritual practices of a wide range of Africa converged into some an umbrella organization. Uh, organization is the wrong word. And um, uh, into an into an umbrella, let's just say, called Vodou which is uh, essential to the foundation of the nation of Haiti. Vodou and Haiti developed in 
absolutely in parallel with each other. And of course, um, there is still a communication of voodoo between Haiti and New Orleans. The voodoo of New Orleans, so beloved by the tourists, which was already a tourist, I mean, voodoo ceremonies were already a tourist destination in the 19th century in New Orleans. The old, the old voodoo seems to have pretty much disappeared. But if you go to a voodoo ceremony in New Orleans now, you will find people who have been uh, practicing who have been trained in the contemporary Haitian practice of voodoo. That communication is ongoing. Uh, it goes without saying that the music that is associated with entailing a variety of the, the drumming knowledge of Haiti, because Haiti has been a chaotic place ever since the enslaved uh, were so um were so uh, defiant as to take their freedom uh, the, the, and have been punished ever since for it by uh, embargo, uh, neocolonialism, and everything else. Uh, the, the, the chaos of Haiti has made it hard to catalog all of the vast amount of drumming knowledge that lives there preserved and continued and developed by the humblest of people. So Haiti is still an un, uh, an unplumbed source of knowledge. Um, now, in the, in, in the musical sense, we still don't know everything that Haitian music is capable of. Now, at the time of the Haitian Revolution, a bunch of plantation owners and their uh, domestic servants and slaves were evacuated to eastern Cuba, where they started to – where they transformed eastern Cuba. Eastern Cuba was absolutely transformed by Saint-Domingue plantation owners who had the, high, the best technical equipment in the world, had the uh, – for agriculture, had uh, not brought the cultivation of coffee to Cuba, which it didn't previously have, et cetera, et cetera. And it seems as though they were planning to break off and secede and establish a French uh, nation in Cuba. And the Spanish king was not uh, fond of this idea, but when Napoleon invaded Haiti, invaded, uh, sorry, not Haiti, when Napoleon invaded Spain and put his brother, Joseph Bonaparte, on the Spanish throne, sort of decapitating uh, the Spanish kingship, uh, Cuba became independent, the the French-speaking planters in the East were definitely persona non grata, and they had to get the hell out of Dodge. And those who did not swear uh, loyalty to the Spanish king or marry Spanish people or know who to pay off or whatever uh, wound up leaving in a flotilla for New Orleans that took place over a period of about four months in late 1809, 1810, about 10,000 people, uh, white uh, people of uh, – free people of color and enslaved uh, came to New Orleans at a time when the population of New Orleans was about 10,000, completely transforming the city. The Domingans, the white Domingans transformed New Orleans in many ways. They basically brought the 
the profession of journalism and the profession of theater to New Orleans. Uh, they wrote the laws. They wrote the uh, the new constitution for Louisiana. They were uh, heavily influential. They were a little bit like the Cuban exiles in Miami, including very right wing and hoping to get their former uh, plantations back. Okay, so the this their their power ebbed over a couple of generations. Uh, but I always like to point out that Congo Square happened across the street from these folks' domain. I said this earlier, not across from the Anglo-American domain. But and Congo Square lasted about as long as the this uh, this Dominican power in uh in in French Louisiana was really strong. Uh, Gottschalk was descended from Dominguez. Uh, John James Audubon uh, was descended from Dominguez. They made it the they made a tremendous cultural contribution, and the black people who came made cultural contributions in other less uh, cataloged ways. Awesome. And Ned, uh, it's been so much fun talking about this. The book is The World That Made New Orleans, From Spanish Silver to Congo Square. The guest has been Ned Sublet. Thanks so much. And I've got to get you back to talk about your other New Orleans book, The Year Before the Flood. Oh, I'd love it. And if you want to come to our our uh, monthly uh, seminars via Zoom and or attend Post Mambo Movie Night the third Thursday of every month, write me at postmambo at gmail.com. That is P-O-S-T-M-A-M-B-O at gmail. Awesome. And I'll plug that in all our social media stuff. Ned, thanks so much. Thank you very much. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Next week, Nate welcomes back Steve Bergsman to discuss his book, Chapel of Love, the story of New Orleans girl group, The Dixie Cups. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett.
Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 